Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Monies, who covers state agencies and public health for Oklahoma Watch. Last week, he wrote about a new report from the Oklahoma County Grand Jury, which wrapped up its term after looking at the state pardon and parole board, tag agent appointments, and conflicts of interest among lawmakers. Paul, why was the grand jury impaneled in the first place? Well, um, in Oklahoma, uh, district attorneys have the power to, to ask a judge to, to do a grand jury and investigate things in their counties. Um, and this one specifically, usually a lot of these, these state agency uh, investigations are done by the multi-county grand jury, which is kind of run out of the attorney general's office. Uh, there were some issues that came up last year um, with Mike Connor, former AG, and he had asked David Prater to take a look at a couple of things that he thought he might have a conflict of interest in. So that's why they impaneled the, the grand jury for the county in October of last year. And uh, they impaneled that back in October. What did they look at earlier in the term? So the first part, they focused on um, the selection and vacancies and tag agencies. And they did actually issue an indictment in December of a sitting lawmaker, Representative Terry O'Donnell uh, from Catoosa. Um, they, they investigated him and alleged that he had uh, filed a bill and got a bill passed that basically helped his wife uh, get a tag agency vacancy once one came up in Catoosa. Now, this uh, final report at the end of their term didn't uh, – they didn't issue any indictments, right? But they they did have a lot of recommendations. How, how often do grand juries issue, you know, policy reports and recommendations rather than just hand down indictments? Yeah, normally in Oklahoma, um, if there's any kind of criminal indictment, um, a grand jury will take care of it. And it sometimes comes from the multi-county grand jury at, at the state level. Uh, most of the time, though, most criminal indictments come just criminal uh, charges come from what's called an information, which is a different way of doing it and doesn't involve a grand jury, obviously involves police reports, investigations. Um, but there have been times in the past uh, when grand juries have looked at um, processes and policies. More, more recently, they've done one in 2018 when they looked at some of the, the lost money that was at the health department. It was 30 million million dollars was missing. Um, they did a whole report on that, did not issue any indictments, but had a lot of recommendations for lawmakers on tightening up some of the financial stuff. And then even before that, uh, the multi-county grand jury um, looked at the execution protocol in Oklahoma when there was uh, several botched up executions back in 2014. Now, more than half this report dealt with procedures at the Pardon and Parole Board. What's been going on at that board in, in recent years? Yes, there's, there's been a lot of um, interest in the pardon parole board um, in the last few years. A lot of it came from uh, Governor Stitt Push early in his term um, on focusing on misdemeanor crimes and people still in prison for those crimes and uh, offering them a way out via commutation. And so there was a big push a few years ago. Uh, a lot of people were released in, a, in mass commutation. And then um, some later issues came up with uh, the pardon parole board and some of the possible commutations of, of uh, death row inmate Julius Jones, which got a lot of worldwide media attention. Um, in the background of that, um, the district attorneys were not happy about some of that push to make the, those commutations faster. And in fact, David Prater himself filed a lawsuit against a couple of former members of the pardon parole board, uh, alleging they had conflicts of interest in terms of, of commutations when it dealt with death row inmates. Now, the board uh, singled out Governor Stitt uh, individually for criticism. 
um, looking at his role in the commutation process. What were their main concerns? And then how did the governor's office respond to that? Yes, they, they, the report found that uh, the governor had uh, basically tried to meet with possible appointees and talk to them about what they might do on the board. And the governor has three members of appointments on that board. It's a five-member board. And so um, they alleged that was not right to do. Um, the governor's office, of course, said that, that that didn't happen the way that they remember it and that uh, this was more of a politically motivated um, uh, grand jury set by a, a Democratic district attorney, David Prater, who has already had issues in the past with uh, some of the problems with the pardon parole board. Well, we are coming right up on uh, a primary election six weeks away, uh, thereabouts, when the report came out. What are the political implications then of that report coming out with that kind of timing? Yes, and and, and partly why they wrapped up last week is because uh, under state law, you can't have a grand jury uh, sit within 30 days of a major election. Of course, the primary is June 28th. Uh, And so they had to wrap up their business um, at, at the end of last week. And you know, part of what they highlighted is something that a dark money group, a political action committee, has been spending a lot of money to highlight, which was the, the somewhat accidental release of uh, an inmate, uh, Lawrence Paul Anderson, who was applied for commutation twice in the space of seven months, which was against the board's policies and procedures already, somehow fell through the cracks, got released, and unfortunately ended up killing three people and is charged for those murders in Grady County. And th- that political part has been a lot of spending against Governor Stitt um, from this dark money group as well. So what did the grand jury have to say about conflicts of interest among lawmakers? So they, they spent a section coming out of some of the stuff to do with uh, Representative Terry O'Donnell um, and the tag agency process and spent a, a decent amount of time in the report talking about how you could do that better. Of course, the tag agency is kind of the, the last remnant of the patronist po- politics that used to, way back when, it, uh, used to get a tag agency because your senator uh, gave it to you essentially. Uh, that cha- that process has changed. The tax commission now has a, a more official process now, but they claimed that it was somewhat manipulated by the representative's actions, and of course, him and his wife have, have maintained their innocence throughout. Now, uh, the report did make a lot of recommendations, as you mentioned, about how to reform tag agency vacancies. What what kind of suggestions did it have? Yeah, they they went to a lot of detail about. Um, you know, how to take the politics out of it a little bit better. And of course, you know, these are policy questions that are probably going to be left up to the legislature. They've already been working on a way to streamline that process and to kind of have a, uh, in fact, there's a bill that's in the latter stages. I don't know if it's passed on a conference committee yet. It would be this week that would come out, but um, that would kind of consolidate some of the, the tag agency and, and driver's license processes and kind of a one-stop idea. Uh, the grand jury kind of echoed some of that as well, uh, but basically said it had to kind of, be a lot more modernized to, to deal with today's kind of um, needs for, for state residents. The grand jury uh, did have a deadline. They, they had to recess. Um, did they leave anything on the table? Were there some things they just didn't have time to get into? They did leave a couple things on the table. Um, they did say um, out of the, the Terry O'Donnell indictment from December, they did say that there may be possibility of, of um, other people that might be involved that could be um, charged via an information by this attorney, but left that up to this attorney himself and his discretion on whether or not anyone else needs to be charged in that particular case. Uh, they also were asked to kind of look at some of the conditions at the Oklahoma County Jail, which has had a lot of problems in recent years and is now managed by a jail trust. Um, 
And they basically said they ran out of time on that. And we recommended that the state's multi-county grand jury take up that issue. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's story about the grand jury's uh, report and and their thoughts on the Pardon and Parole Board and all of Paul's other investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to Lionel Ramos, who covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. Governor Stitt signed two anti-abortion bills in recent weeks, one outlawing the procedure once a fetal heartbeat is detected in the womb, the other criminalizing uh, the act of performing or enabling the procedure in any way. Now, the latest trigger bill, a complete ban on abortions with no exceptions for things like rape or incest, is uh, working its way through, assuming that Roe v. Wade is overturned. It's already passed the House. It's now awaiting approval in the Senate, and it, too, will likely find its way to the governor's desk. Lionel's been reading some of the state's data on abortions and trying to find out who in Oklahoma will be most affected by these recent changes in the laws. Lionel, what exactly have you been looking at? Yeah, so every year since 2000, uh, Oklahoma has collected abortion statistics and put out a report with various tables and charts on it called the Abortion Surveillance in Oklahoma Report. Uh, It covers the years uh, 2002 to 2020, the the latest one does. The report is compiled and reported to the federal government on a voluntary basis and includes the number and characteristics of women obtaining legal-induced abortions in the state. Uh, The federal government then goes ahead and compiles its own report about the states that choose to share that information and also publishes its own version of abortion surveillance in America. How does Oklahoma collect the data? Every physician, after they perform an abortion, is required to fill out what's called an individual abortion form, which is basically a questionnaire asking for the age, race, marital status, and education level of each patient, as well as the type of abortion and the reason for it. Does the doctor fill that out by himself, or is the patient involved in that? I plan to speak with a physician about this today, actually, so I will soon know more. But what I understand, based on the sample form on the Oklahoma State Department of Health website, is that the physician will have a conversation with the patient as they scroll and click through a form in an official government portal. Now, we're talking about a story that hasn't been published yet. You're still doing the reporting on it, but you've seen the data. You've looked at years' worth of reports. In the in the big picture, who's getting abortions in Oklahoma? You know, like I said earlier, the last report was published a year ago in May and shows that between 2016 and 2020, there were 20,506 abortions recorded in, in Oklahoma about 99,500 total from 2002 to 2020, so almost 100,000 in that time span. A vast majority of those abortions trend towards being performed on unmarried white women without college degrees between the ages of 20 and 24. But there's a caveat there. Uh, The reports don't account for ethnicity, so there is no telling how many of the white women recorded are Hispanic, for example. So there's an entire demographic that's not specified there, and that muddies the water a little bit. Why is that? Well, I spoke to the author of the report, a helpful woman named uh, Dr. Jennifer Harper at the Health Department's Center for Health Statistics. And she said for a long time, when the individual abortion form asked for race and ethnicity, 
answers would be incomplete because people would pick an ethnicity and not a race, or vice versa, despite both being needed to properly identify a person and, and sort through the data. Uh, this made for incomplete data collection over time, she said. Uh, she said eliminating the option to choose an ethnicity makes for the most complete report each May because people, you know, just choose one of, one of the five options that are there. Does that uh, affect the way we understand the data? Not by much, though it does inflate the number of, of total white women getting abortions. Even so, if you pay attention to the abortion ratios, which the report defines as the number of abortions per 1,000 live births, black women have had nearly three times the number of abortions as white women since 2018. The same is true for the abortion rates, or the number of abortions per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44. Um, and for Asian women, the rates and ratios are around twice as much as white women, and indigenous women have the lowest numbers overall. Interesting. You said the reports are published by the state each May. Does that mean we should be seeing another one uh, pretty soon? That's what Dr. Harper says. Uh, the data scientist that wrote these reports, she told me that she was working on a rough draft when we spoke late last week. Uh, we should have a full 20 years worth of abortion data in a few weeks' time. And while I don't expect the overall trends to change much, fewer women have been getting abortions in total over the past two or three years. All right, Lionel, thanks for your work on that. You'll be able to read Lionel's story uh, soon at OklahomaWatch.org, along with all of his other investigative work on the race and equity beat. In this segment, I'm with reporter Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He's been following a federal lawsuit that alleges Oklahoma's execution process causes an unconstitutional level of pain and suffering. Keaton, where does this lawsuit stand? So there was a trial on the lawsuit that started in late February, ended in early March, lasted six days. And since the trial ended, it's just been a lot of work getting the trial transcript finished and allowing both sides to kind of go through the evidence and see what everyone said. So it's just been a lot of, you know, wait and see on, on what's going to happen there. But there was a notable uh, development in the case last week, right? Correct. Attorneys for both sides filed their post-trial briefings, which is kind of an in-depth look at the evidence that was presented, the witnesses that testified, um, what they said. Of course, each side is going to um, use what was said to try to bolster their argument and, and hope that the judge will rule in their favor. But it does provide a an in-depth look for journalists as well as the public to see how the trial went because in the federal courtroom, there's no cameras or phones allowed. Um, so, you know, it provides that in-depth look we hadn't had. Uh, what kind of information is included in those filings? Uh, so it's it's a breakdown. Like I mentioned, it's a breakdown of evidence and witness testimony. Um, there were several witnesses um, that the defense presented that said the execution process, the first drug that's used, midazolam, doesn't fully render someone unconscious and will when the second and third drugs are administered, that person will feel um, extreme pain. They presented evidence that people executed using midazolam uh, suffer from something called pulmonary edema, which is where fluid builds in the lungs. It it feels like you're drowning, essentially, if you are um, 
conscious and able to sense that. Um, basically, the defense's argument was midazolam's doing its job. Nobody's feeling anything. They're knocked out quickly. Um, so you can see that going through those post-trial filings. Now, if the judge rules in favor of the state, uh, when could executions resume in Oklahoma? Yeah, so there will be appeals uh, likely regardless of how the trial rules. But if the judge rules in favor of the state, it's it's looking like that an appeal won't stop the state from proceeding and seeking out executions. So the state will go to the Court of Criminal Appeals, request an execution date. If the Court of Criminal Appeals signs off on that, that's approximately a 45-day minimum process of when the date's set to when it's scheduled to be carried out. So there can be a final clemency hearing, um, that sort of thing. So relatively quickly, um, if the judge issues a ruling a month from now, uh, we could see maybe by the late summer or early fall executions resuming in Oklahoma. And what if the judge rules the other way in front of the plaintiffs, the prisoners? So that would require Oklahoma to develop a new protocol that doesn't use midazolam in order to fulfill the the judge's requirement. So that could be an exec, another lethal injection that uses pentobarbital, for example, that the federal government uses. Of course, the state has claimed it, it can't get that drug. It's been due to, too difficult. Another option is the state constitution authorizes execution by nitrogen gas um, as a second option or firing squad as a third option if you can't get those supplies. So um, if that does happen, it will be interesting to see what the state's response is. It's not a question of whether or not Oklahoma will continue to do executions. It's likely a question of how they'll do them. Do we have uh, any indication, as you've looked into this, uh, which way the judge might be leaning? Um, based on what I've heard, it's it appears likely the judge is going to rule in favor of the state. Um, of course, some other states use midazolam in their protocols. There's been other lawsuits, and for the judge to take the step that using this protocol is uncon- causes unconstitutional pain would be uh, pretty significant from a legal standpoint. Of course, the this case has been going on for years. It proceeded to trial. Uh, the judge was very attentive and taking notes and asking lots of questions during the trial. Um, I was there for a few days of it. And so, of course, the evidence is being weighed and it's being considered, but signs are pointing towards likely a ruling in favor of the state. Now, uh, you mentioned this might have some implications. Uh, it is there national interest in this case or others watching this? Yeah, it will. In those states that are using midazolam that um, haven't been able to get pentobarbital, for example, like the federal government uses, they'll certainly be watching this case, um, either if you're the state trying to uphold it or the plaintiff's prisoners trying to fight against it. This will you know, certainly... Being tested in, in a federal court like this will will set a precedent for uh, the use of this drug going forward. Now, uh, since John O'Connor was appointed as the attorney general, Oklahoma did resume executions. We've executed four people in the last seven months. How how was that able to happen while this lawsuit was pending? Yeah, so those prisoners were removed from the lawsuit because they didn't select an alternative execution method as ordered by the court. And 
there was lots and lots of back and forth. Um, some tried to reverse that and get back on. Um, so there was some contention there. Uh, of course, former Attorney General Mike Hunter previously stated that we're going to wait on executions until this thing is wrapped up, and that was a little bit of a reversal on O'Connor's part. But since they were removed from the lawsuit, the state's point of view was that there's no, they're no longer fighting this. It's no longer pending in court. Um, we can proceed, and that that went through the the you know Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals and went all the way up to the Supreme Court um, in a few cases, and those executions proceeded. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can follow uh, Keaton's reporting on this particular trial, as well as all his investigative work into Oklahoma's criminal justice system at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.